Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing, it's our second week, in a new sermon series on the book of Galatians. Galatians is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. Paul had planted a new church in Galatia three years prior to writing this letter. In the midst of preaching the gospel and establishing this new church, they saw phenomenal growth, amazing work that went on. And what's happened is over these three years, he's heard that they've begun to substitute a counterfeit message for the gospel uh, that he preached. And so he's addressing those issues, and he speaks really directly to some very pertinent issues in our own life. How whatever else may be true of us, the gospel remains the power of God, as Paul puts it in Romans, the power of God for salvation. Uh, In that if we cling to it, we have life. If we move on from it, we give up our lives. And so uh, this morning we're going to be still in Galatians chapter 1. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? Today's scripture reading is Galatians 1, verses 3 through 12. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, this is uh, one of Paul's stronger, uh, more strongly worded sections of anything that he ever wrote to any church. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in his grace. Going on to announce uh, essentially curses on those who announce a different message and who've led these people astray. He reminds me there's this uh, scene in the book of Exodus, uh, of course, uh, made popular through Charlton Heston, right? If you tell you to picture Moses coming down off Mount Sinai with the tablets, uh, most of us, at least of a certain age, uh, will ask you to raise your hand, identify uh, that as Charlton Heston comes down off the mountain and he's just been given God's law. And right when he comes back to his people, these people that he's fought for and bled for and led out of Egypt, that he's seen God do amazing things for, What are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf, uh, saying, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. 
And Charlton Heston slash Moses takes the Ten Commandments, uh, and he, in his anger, he slams them down. Right? That's what Paul reminds me of here. Just like Moses coming down out of the mountain to see these people that he loves abandoning the God that he's led them with, Paul comes back after just a short time away and sees the people that he loves so much doing something that angers him incredibly. Now, on the one hand, uh, I've got to confess that I wonder, Paul, what's the big deal? I get why Moses was mad, right? You lead a people out of slavery, you see God divide the Red Sea and the plagues and all of it, you come back, and before you can even read the Ten Commandments, they're already breaking the first two, right? Before you can even, uh, you just, don't make a golden image, is that, you know, they're upset. But what's going on in Galatia is harder to understand. Because while uh, the Israelites were breaking flagrantly one very important law, all the Galatians were doing was keeping some extra laws, right? I get being mad at somebody breaking the law, but can you imagine being that heated about somebody just trying to be doing a little extra, keeping a few extra laws so so that they're just sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, so they're sure they're a little more obedient, Paul's angrier with the Galatians than he is with, at the Corinthians. Remember, we preached for, if you were here in the spring, we preached through 1 Corinthians. And in that church, they were uh, prejudiced against the poor. There was incest in the church. There was people getting divorces left and right. Paul was not happy about all that. But he saved some of his most passionate uh, displeasure here for the Galatians. Can you imagine uh, being angry with your children for being too obedient? right, for doing uh, extra chores that you hadn't asked them to do, for you tell them to go into their room and study 30 minutes, and they stay in there and study an hour, and you go, gosh, kids, I can't believe it. Why are you doing all this? But that's somewhat of what's going on here in Paul, because what Paul's diagnosis is, is that on the outside, it looks like they're doing all of the right things, but they're doing it for all of the wrong reasons, In in Paul's perspective, and I'll I'll add in Jesus' perspective, uh, that you are never in a more dangerous spiritual condition than when on the outside things look fine and you look good and you look righteous and you look like you have it all together. And yet your foundation is built on the wrong foundation and the wrong message. Right? It's one thing to be sick and for it to be visible to those around you. You might get to a doctor in time. You might get some help. You're a great danger when you appear healthy on the outside while a cancer grows on the inside. And that's what Paul is saying to the Galatians is you've let a cancer grow on the inside. And while you might be doing all the right things, your heart is in a desperately dangerous place because you've traded the true gospel for a counterfeit message uh, that has no power to save you. To bring this uh, a little closer to home, Christian Smith uh, was a sociologist, he is a sociologist, he was at North Carolina, University of Chapel Hill, now he's at Notre Dame. But in 2005, he conducted a research project where he studied the religious beliefs of young Americans. Uh, These were people 18 to 25 at the time, Uh, it's now people in their mid-30s, and the trends have only continued since 2005. And what he examined in this survey was the actual religious beliefs of Americans, right? And he did it, you know, uh, spanning different churches and no churches at all, different religious beliefs, Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus, uh, people who profess no real religious affiliation at all. 
And what he noticed in his survey was that there was a certain common trend of belief that whether you were in a church or out of a church, many people were believing in essentially the same God. And he defined this American religion as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Those are, those are big words. What do they mean? He defines it in these five ways. He says, there's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and who watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, is taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. So moralistic, be good. Right? Just try to be a good person. Try to be fair, try to be kind, try to be a good neighbor, try to be reasonable. Therapeutic, what matters most about your life is your own self-fulfillment, finding out who you are and then living an authentic expression of who you really are. And then deism, there's probably a God, but he's not really all that involved in our lives. And the shocking thing that Smith discovered is that whether you pulled Christians or non-Christians, that the, the basic fundamentals of this faith were throughout uh, our culture. What does this mean for us is that we are in every bit as much of danger uh, as the Galatian church was. That, there's, that there are people in our world, there are people in, in this room who've heard a message of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Be good, do good, lean on God when he helps, but not all that big of a deal. You've heard that message, and you've either accepted it or rejected it, and you believe that you've heard the Christian message. You believe that what you've accepted or rejected is the gospel, uh, when in reality, it's a counterfeit. It's what Paul would not recognize uh, as the true gospel. And especially in a church like Jacksonville, I mean, a city like Jacksonville, uh, where there's a church on every corner, where most of us, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, have some overlap or experience of church. It's crucially important to make sure, whether you accept it or reject it, that the message you're dealing with is, a, is actually the gospel, that it's actually the message that Jesus taught and died for and rose for and that Paul preached. Right? Otherwise, to deal with a counterfeit and treat it as the real thing, you miss out on, on the potential power of the real article. It's like tasting a McRib sandwich and deciding you don't like barbecue. <laughs> right? You go, eh, I'm not sure about this. No, you tasted a manufactured, man-made, pieced-together imitation of the real thing. And until you've smelled it and tasted it off the smoker, you don't know if you like barbecue or not. And so... We are going to look uh, at this passage in Galatians on how to know if you've actually dealt with the real article, about whether or not you've encountered the actual gospel or a counterfeit gospel. And the first thing that we see uh, in this passage is that the gospel itself, the true gospel, is an encounter with a power beyond yourself. You know you've dealt with the real gospel when you've encountered a real power that's bigger than yourself. It's not contained to your ideas or your beliefs or your thoughts. That there's a power outside of you that has addressed you, that has called you, and that has changed you. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. The word here that he uses, it's essentially he calls God the one who calls. That you've, you've taken the calling one, the one who calls you, and you have 
deserted him. To deal with the gospel is to know yourself to be addressed by a powerful voice beyond yourself, calling you to something other than yourself. Right? That doesn't mean necessarily that you hear an audible voice, right? but that it does mean that, that you have been addressed and you recognize yourself to have been called by name, by someone who has real authority to command your life and who has the real authority and power to change your life. And you know that experience. You know, we see this throughout the pages of the Bible. We're going to look at Paul's experience next week. He, starts to, he gets autobiographical uh, later in this chapter. And he talks about his experience on the Damascus Road when Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his horse, and redirects his life. He encountered a power that called him, and it changed him. Right? We see Moses by the burning bush, right, addressed by the God who calls. And he calls him, and it changes his life entirely. Right? We see Jacob wrestling uh, with God in the night. And from that moment on, he, he knows that he's dealt with a power because he walks with a limp. Right? He's changed from that point on. And so you know that you've dealt with the gospel in and of itself when you've been called by a power beyond yourself and you know that there's been a change. Right? It doesn't mean that, there's, that you, you can look at your life and say, I was a mess and then I was called and now I'm perfect. Right? We don't get, you know, God's not in the business of selling diet plans where you've got the before picture and the after picture and the after picture is an airbrushed image of perfection. Right? No, the, the after image is still messy, it's still wrestling, it's still struggling, but you know that you're not who you were. Right? You know that you have a hope that you didn't have. You know that you've been loved in a way you haven't been loved. There's a real change because you've been called to something else. Some of you who have young children in the house might identify with this. There's an experience that happens to parents when you call out for your children uh, and you know that uh, you are not being listened to. Right? You say, uh, honey, it's time, come to dinner. And maybe you hear, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. A few minutes pass. Guys or girls, come to dinner. It's time. Yeah, we'll be right there. More minutes pass. And then what you have to do eventually is you leave the kitchen or wherever you are, you go into their room, you turn off the TV, you remove the toys, and you say, no, now. It's time to come to dinner now. And the great thing about being a parent, especially when your kids are small, if they don't do it, you can actually pick them up, lift them, move them, and carry them. <laughs> right? God addresses us uh, as one with a voice that comes with power. The one, he's not the, we, sometimes we think of him as the far-off dad in the other room who's saying, guys, come on over, we're ready when you're ready. Dinner's ready. But no, he's a God who, who comes to us in the midst of our distraction in the midst of our being occupied with other things, and he speaks directly to us. Son, daughter, come, it's time. And actually, some of us know what the experience is like of him being picked up and moved by the will and power of God to something we wouldn't have chosen ourselves or known ourselves. And so God addresses us with a power uh, that commands our whole lives Paul puts it this way later in the letter in Galatians 4.9. He says this. He says, you have come to know God. And then you, I love these points where Paul, he's writing, and you can see him kind of correcting himself. I guess he didn't have whiteout. Uh, so he's not going back and, and de deleting. He says, you've come to know God, comma, or rather, you've come to be known by God. Right? Because what he's saying is, what, what you know is not ultimately the most important thing. Right? What we know about God, what we think about God, what we believe about God, what's most important is that God knows you that God has come to know you and he's come to call you. 
And coming to faith is coming to know the one who knows you, right? The one who already knew you, you come to know him, to want to know him as he really is. Where you come to love the one who's already loved you, the one who's loved you from eternity past, the one who loved you on the cross, the one who's loved you your entire life, to come to know the one, to love the one who loves you, to recognize that what matters ultimately uh, is God's action, his voice, his power. So the gospel, the real gospel, is an encounter with a power beyond yourself. Secondly, the gospel is both good and news, right? This is, this, this is a bit redundant. Gospel in Greek uh, comes from the word good news, right? It literally means good news. And so to, to know that the gospel is actually the gospel, it has to be both good and news, right? The gospel is news. It's an announcement of something that happened, right? We see this here in... Uh, in our passage in verse 8, if you look, it's, Paul says, if somebody else should preach to you a gospel, the word there is basically to be the herald of good news, right? In these days, before TV, before newspapers, news was announced by a voice cry, right? It was somebody in the town square saying, good news, we won the war. Good news, the emperor was victorious. Good news, uh, there we're giving away bread, right? There was, there was good news. It was an announcement of something that had happened. So there's a content to the gospel, right? It's not just what we feel. It's not just what we think. It's a statement about something that has happened, that Jesus died and that he rose again. So it's news. It's an announcement. It's an announcement of content that can be uh, twisted, right, that you can get wrong. If you look at verse 7, Paul says here that you're turning to a different gospel. Again, he corrects himself, not that there really is another one, But there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The word for distort here means literally to turn it backwards, to turn it inside out, to to, to pervert it so much that the the inner logic of it, the message of it, is entirely turned around. And Paul says they announce this to you like it's good news, but their good news is neither good nor news. Right? We can piece together what these false teachers in Galatia were saying. And it's essentially this, if you wanted to boil it down. It's good news. Here's the good news. You Gentiles, Greeks and Romans, strange Gentiles, you too can become a part of God's people. You can become a part of Israel if you just keep the law. Right? And this was their announcement. Remember Paul's announcement, we have summarized in different places, which is that Jesus, by the blood of his cross, had torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Later on in Galatians, he's going to say that the good news is that all who are in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Right? That the good news of the gospel is that you are accepted by God, loved by God, before your obedience, before your life changes, before any of that. And so these other teachers came behind Paul and said, well, you know, Paul wasn't quite right. There is good news. You get to be a part of Israel on a few conditions. You need to start keeping the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to start eating kosher. You need to start keeping every bit uh, of the Old Testament moral code uh, in order to be a part. And they believe that this uh, was, in and of itself, the good news. And we can see that that is a perversion. It's a twisting of the good news. Because what the law was, the law was, was two things. It was both a cultural and a moral marker uh, for Israel, right? It was a cultural marker 
that said Gentiles can become members of the church once they start acting like Jews, right? We'll accept you on a few conditions, right? Some of you know what it's like. Uh, our minority brothers and sisters, if you, when you live in an in a ethnic or cultural minority within a majority culture, you know what it is to hear the words, you're welcomed here on a few conditions, right? You belong here if you change in certain key ways to make sure that you belong, right? Gentiles, welcome to the church. It is awesome to have you. If you could actually just turn down the Greekness or the Romanness of your life a little bit, you would be welcomed and accepted here. You could be just like us. You could just be, you could, you could fit in. Right, and so people who lived with that message in the world were now coming to hear that message in the church, right? And, and friends, this is a tragedy, right? To, in the American experience, if we can speak honestly for a moment, if you're living uh, in a majority white culture as a cultural minority, you know what it is when you show up at work, when you show up somewhere to say, you're welcome here if you can turn down your Latino-ness a little bit, if you can turn down your blackness a little bit, if you can turn down your Asian-ness a little bit, uh, then you can, yeah, that, that's great, then you belong. And it is, a, it is an absolute shame and a sin uh, if you feel that in a church. And it's, it's not your fault, it's our fault, right? Uh, it's, it's a certain uh, cultural normativity uh, in a church. And what Paul is addressing head-on here is among these Galatian Christians. He, he later, he, he tells them they're actually putting in a stumbling block that makes it hard for people to come to Christ, that makes it hard for people to come to know the living God because you're asking them to adopt your culture before they come to your faith. And you're robbing yourself of the prospect of being informed by cultures other than yours, of being a part of a tapestry that is, that is different cultured. Friends, if we are ever going to achieve our dreams and vision as a church, uh, it requires us to deal with this head on, right? We talk about our vision as being an uncommon fellowship, right? Of being a place where, where, where the various ethnicities and cultures of this world find full expression and find true delight in life together. And it's going to require us to look at the ways uh, that we ask one another to change before we're included, to learn to speak a certain way, sing a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way. And this is a lifelong project, right? White people are slow to get this, right? Because most of our lives, we live in a world uh, where people come to us, where people learn to speak our language in our jobs, in our places, in our, in our places of worship. And it requires a lifelong learning process. Uh, to learn that you wear a cultural skin as a white person, uh, that you bring certain assumptions about the way the world works and what's good and what's right and what's normal. Uh, and the church should be a place where there's an honest conversation and a freedom uh, to hear one another, to come together to one another. The church of all places. In fact, I think we have reason to believe that this world outside the church is actually never going to be a place that matches the hopes of the kingdom of God. Right, where Paul says that in the church there's to be neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, rich nor poor, white nor black, upper income, lower income. There's, that all of the things, Latino, black, Asian, uh, every, every peoples of this earth, where there is no sliding scale of goodness, worthiness, or rightness, 
but where we come together in what, uh, what we call an uncommon fellowship. And so Paul is addressing this courageously and head-on uh, with the Galatians, uh, and it's going to take us doing the same. Now, it wasn't just uh, cultural boundaries that they were putting up. It was also a moral boundary, right? It wasn't just learn to act, eat, talk Jewish. It was also, once you keep the law, once you conform to certain ethical expectations, then God will include you in his people, right? Once you're, uh, once you're good enough, right? Once your life has changed, once you've made some moral rectification in your life, then God will accept you as you are. And this is where their teaching of the gospel is actually a complete inversion of the gospel, right? The true message of the gospel says this, because you are loved and accepted by God, you can change. You can live a life of love and obedience and care, right? Because you're loved, you can change. Their message says, if you change, then you can be loved, right? Once you get better, then God will love you. Once you clean up your act, then you'll have God's grace. Once you learn uh, how to fit in morally and ethically with God's demands, then congratulations. What did Christian Smith say? Good people go to heaven when they die is one of the foundational religious beliefs of our culture. Christianity, the true gospel says, if that's the good news, if your good news is good people go to heaven when they die, heaven is going to be an awfully empty place where Jesus just sits up there and goes, where, where is everybody, right? The, the Bible tells us that there is none good, not even one, except for Jesus. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to tell uh, Gentiles they have to keep the law when Jesus in his life tells, uh, tells the Pharisees that you're laying a burden on their backs that you know that neither you nor your fathers have ever been able to keep, yeah, yeah. right? When you tell people they have to be good to get in, you, you ignore the fact that you're not all that good yourself, that there actually uh, has never been someone other than Jesus who is truly good. I love, uh, the, uh, there's, a, there's a scene in The Simpsons um, where Homer uh, picks up the Bible. And Homer, uh, he, you know, Ned Flanders had given him a Bible. And Homer picks up and he reads straight through it. And he goes, man, talk about a preachy book. Everybody's a sinner except this guy. You know, and, and that's the message of the Bible. Everybody's a sinner, except this guy, right? Except, except for Jesus. And each one of us uh, falls short. And when you turn the message around, you distort it and you change it and you rob it of its power, right? They're the same words involved. If you change, God will love you. And because God loves you, you can change, right? It's the same, same words. But when the order's wrong, the entire thing's wrong. And here's the tricky part. You can have two people doing the exact same things. One doing it from one foundation, one doing it out of another message. Uh, and their lives from the outside might be utterly indistinguishable. Right? Pick an activity. You might have two people reading their Bible. One person gets up early to read their Bible because they're so gripped by the love of God that they can't wait to spend time with him and learn more about his grace. Another one gets up early, makes their coffee, and sits down because they believe that because they read their Bible, God's just a little more proud of them uh, than he is with their neighbor who sleeps in, maybe even than their own spouse that sleeps in, right? Because we love to feel better, right? Two people might sign up and go on a mission trip to serve the poor around the world. 
One person does it because they know that when they were poor, when they were destitute, God sent his son for them and it gripped them and it's given them a vision for their lives. And another person might go because they feel like if they can go and serve the poor and put a picture of themselves with some poor kids uh, on their Instagram, that that's going to mark them as just a little bit better. And maybe God will be a little bit more proud of them. Right? So you can have two people doing the same things for the wrong reasons. One does it because they know that God loves and accepts them so that they obey. One does it so that God will love them. Paul says that if you're doing good deeds, if you're doing even the right things but from the wrong reason, Paul says that was his story. He did most of his life that way, and he's come to a point where he says that is filthy rags. That is, that is worth less than nothing in this life. You know, friends, there's nothing all that unique about claiming that people need to confess and repent of their bad deeds, right? Nearly every religion in the world says that, right? You do bad, you say you're sorry. You break the law, you break the commandments, you, you should confess. Only Christianity says something uh, far more radical. It says you not only have to repent of your bad deeds, but you have to repent of your good deeds. You have to not only repent of the bad things that you do, but you have to repent of the good things that you've done for all the wrong reasons. That those are the filthy rags. That to bring your good efforts before God and say, look, because of this, do you love me? Paul says you've got to repent of that. That that is a far more insidious sin. Jesus' life even shows it, right? Who are the, the people who are the most ready for his message were the most notorious sinners of his world, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were the ones who couldn't stand his message because it required them to let go, not just of their bad deeds. They thought everybody should let go of that. But let go of their good deeds. John Gerstner put it this way, the main, uh, the main thing between you and God is not our sins, but your damnable good works. Christianity says your repentance has to go all the way down to the foundation. That your good deeds and your bad deeds, if they're done uh, in and of yourself, is a part of your own self-salvation project, then they are filthy rags. You know, Martin Luther told a story. Uh, it's, one of my, it's, it's a great uh, old story. He says there was a, there was a farmer uh, in England who was a, a humble farmer. He worked a plot of land that was owned by a noble. He was a carrot farmer. And one day he pulled out of the ground the most beautiful carrot he had ever seen. It was perfect. It was big. It was orange. I don't know what else you look for in carrots. Um, <laughs> it, was a, it was a beautiful carrot. And he said, that's right. Uh, and so he said, he, he said I've, I've got this carrot. My entire life is indebted uh, to this king whose land I farm. I'm going to take my carrot to the king. And so he goes in past the nobles, past the inner court. He goes to the king and he says, king, this is the most perfect carrot that I ever have grown in all of my long years of carrot farming. Look at its orangeness. Look at its bigness. And he says, uh, I probably will never grow another carrot like this. But you are a good and honorable and fair king. You've always been wonderful to me. I love you. Here's the carrot. And the king, moved by his gratitude, said, because you've loved me in this way, because you've been this gracious towards me, uh, take the land. You own it. You have your own property to farm. You've got your own uh, castle on the land. It's all yours. And one of his noblemen was sitting there and said, 
okay, I get how this works. I get what kind of king this is. And this king bred, I mean, this, this nobleman bred horses. And so he brought his best horse, a sleek, strong, fast stallion. And he brings him into the king and he says, king, king, king. This is the most perfect horse that I've ever raced. It's the fastest horse in all my stables, the strongest horse, and it's yours. You're a good king. You're a wonderful king. I'm so very thankful for you. And the king said, thank you. Thank, thank you for the horse. And the nobleman says, what gives? And the king says, the poor farmer gave the carrot to me, and you gave the horse to yourself. Right? And the good deeds work that way. If it's a gift that you're presenting to yourself, it's filthy rag. But when it's offered to God out of an overflow of gratitude for what he's done for you and his love for you, then it uh, is true worship indeed. And then uh, finally, the good news has to be both good and news. And then finally, the gospel joins you to a living person. Look uh, here what Paul says, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you, right? This isn't, uh, Paul's astonishment isn't that uh, that they've abandoned his message or his thoughts, or his ideas. It's that they've abandoned God. They've abandoned Christ. That the gospel uh, knits us together in a relationship with a person. That far more than just ideas that we believe or assent to, it's a person that we're joined to in a living relationship. Right? The gospel joins us to a person in an ongoing, living, and dynamic relationship. It makes us friends of the friend of sinners. It makes Jesus our older brother makes God the Father, our Father, and us his sons and daughters, that it brings us into a relationship with a person. Look at verse 10. Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul has come to view his entire life in light of the gospel as being a life of service to Christ. Paul did a lot to serve other people. Right? He sacrificed, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. He did all kinds of things in order to serve the church and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But Paul says all of that, more than being about others, it's about Jesus. It's about being knit together in such a way with a living person that his voice has the power to command my entire life. That he has the right uh, to, to command what I do with my body, what I do with my money, what I do with my relationships. I'm a servant not of people, not living for people's approval, not living for my own reputation, uh, but living as a servant of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, Welsh preacher, uh, preached in London uh, for many years. He uses an illustration. He said, how would you feel, and this is actually just a a riff on one of Jesus' illustrations. He said, how would you feel about someone who paid your debts? And he said, well, it would depend, wouldn't it, on the debt that you paid. If you came home and found out that there was someone uh, who, in your absence, had paid your debts, if, let's say, you had put a letter in the mail without a stamp on it, and they had just paid your postage, you would probably say thank you, right? You'd say, pat them on the back, thanks for the stamp. If you came back and found out that your 10 years of of unpaid taxes had finally caught up with you, Right, that your life of tax evasion, the IRS was on to you and that they were at the front door and the person in your house had paid 10 years of back taxes so that you don't have to go to prison uh, when the IRS comes for you. What would you do then? Lloyd-Jones says you'd fall down at their feet and say, command me. My life is yours. You've, you've, you've purchased my freedom. You've purchased my life. 
What do you want? What do I owe? When you come to understand the reality of the gospel, right, that we have, Jesus hasn't just paid our parking tickets, right? He hasn't just paid for the little bits that we kind of get it wrong sometimes. But he's paid for the depth of our sin, the depth of our wandering and our rebellion against God. When you realize that that's what, your sin, all of it, that that's what he took on himself on the cross, that that's what the nails and the thorns were all about, you don't pat him on the back and say, thanks, Jesus. You fall at his feet and say, command me. I'm your servant. My life is yours. Everything I have, everything I'm going to be, all of my relationships, all of my resources, it's all yours. Tell me what to do. The gospel, it's the voice of a power beyond us, cheering us with good news, calling us to a life, a whole life of obedience to Jesus. Friends, that's the only message uh, that Paul calls the power of God for salvation. The power of God to turn your life around. The bits of it that you know need help, the bits of it that you don't even know need help yet. That's the message. Have you heard his voice? Have you answered his voice? Have you come to know the one who knows you and to love the one who loves you? Uh, If you haven't yet, that's the message. Right? Not, Not be good enough, not try harder. Answer the voice. Respond to the call. There's no better day. Right? There's a, don't wait for a better one. Come to Jesus, the voice who calls. Because the words that he speaks over you, Paul summarizes as grace and peace. Grace, forgiveness, mercy. A clean slate. Peace. At one with God, at home with yourself, in God. Finally, not anxious, not guilty, not ashamed, at peace with God through Christ. Whether for the first time today or for the thousandth, let's come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, for the true power of your grace. That your grace really and truly does have the power to change the human heart. Lord, some of us know our heart's need of change. We're tired and worn out uh, thinking that we can change ourselves. Lord, in so many ways we've tried. We've made our resolutions. We've tried to fix our own addictions. We've tried to heal our own diseases. And Lord, uh, here before you, we admit uh, that we need a power beyond ourselves. We need to respond to a voice bigger than our own. We need a healing deeper than what we can do ourselves. Lord Jesus, we turn to you in faith. We say thank you for your incredible, incredible good news. Lord, we admit that it can be hard when we've heard this news, uh, some of us, decades ago, that it's hard uh, for the goodness and the newness of it to seem uh, thrilling and joyful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts again with gratitude. Uh, for who you are and what you've done for us. And that like your servant, Paul, we would come to view our entire lives as lives lived in service of our King. Lord Jesus, we ask you to have your way in us. Have your way in our church. Heal everything that divides. Knit us together as one church. Knit together not by the things that we're convinced make us good, 
but knit together by our identity uh, as sinners in need of a savior. Knit together as people commanded on a mission. Lord Jesus, we're your people. Command us as you will. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.